There had been a series of discriminatory actions at various Denny's around the country. They had manager training sessions and materials that were just jaw-dropping in their racism. This decision, in my opinion, became the forerunner of other critical Supreme Court decisions. On April 1st, 1993, 21 Secret Service agents were responsible for protecting President Bill Clinton during his visit to the Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland. On their breakfast break, they visited a Denny's restaurant. Every single officer was willing to put their lives on the line for their country and for their president that day. But the restaurant only served the white officers. My name is Kate Stetson. I'm a global board member and the co-director of our appellate practice at Hogan Lovells. Today, we'll hear about legal cases spurred by discrimination based on race and sexual orientation. Jonathan Abram is one of the Hogan Lovell's lawyers who represented Denny's customers, including the Secret Service agents. So Jonathan, I want to ask you to help set the scene a little bit. This was not the only instance of discrimination at Denny's chain restaurants around that time. What was happening? Well, it turned out, we found out immediately after we got involved as the result of the Secret Service agents uh, instance that there had been a a, a series of discriminatory actions at various Denny's around the country. And in fact, there had been a Department of Justice investigation. This was back in the day when the Civil Rights Division was enforcing the civil rights laws. And uh, during that time, the DOJ had investigated Denny's and was at the time in the process of or had just finalized a consent decree with Denny's in which Denny's agreed to go forth and do no wrong, to, to, uh, to engage in no, in no further discrimination. And, you know, it's been a long time, but I think it was within a week of finalizing that consent decree with the Justice Department that the event you described relating to the Secret Service officers uh, at the Denny's on Route 50 uh, uh, outside of Annapolis happened. And so, from the Justice Department standpoint, this was more of the same. And certainly when we got involved, we immediately became aware of this and many other instances at Denny's around the country. How did Hogan Lovells and how did you become involved in this case? Well, Walter can probably tell that story. He, uh, I think you got the call, didn't you, Walter, from Rod Boggs? I think the call first went to uh, Jack Keeney I think Jack was the outgoing pro bono partner at the time, and I was the incoming. So I think Jack brought me into the conversation with Rod Boggs. And I remember the meeting that Jack and I had with Rod uh, about the case. And both Jack and I were very enthusiastic about the possibility of us taking on the case. And Walter, just for the benefit of people who don't realize the legend you just mentioned, who, who is Rod Boggs? Rod Boggs um, was a very longtime director of the Washington Lawyers Committee. Great public servant and a very good partner to Hogan Lovells. Brought us many, many cases that we could either take on or work on with him. And he 
Mm-hmm. So the, the plaintiffs that Hogan Lovells was representing, Hogan and Hartson, of course, at the time, uh, were they individual Secret Service agents? Was it a class, a group, an organization? Well, originally, um, I, I think the case began uh, as us representing the Secret Service agents. But as Jonathan knows better than I, um, after the announcement of this lawsuit, uh, many, many other people surfaced and came to us. And eventually, Jonathan can tell this story, I bet. Um, eventually, it became a broader lawsuit than just the Secret Service agents, and a class was assembled and certified. Jonathan, you want to say a little more on that? Well, in cases like this, uh, publicity is your friend. And it certainly was here um, when a bunch of Secret Service agents who, as you say, were on the way to protect President Clinton uh, at the, Na- the uh, Naval Academy, when they suffer discrimination of the sort that happened in this case, it, ju- it gets a lot of publicity and rightly so. And so we immediately, I mean, I think within a matter of a week or so, set up a what used to be called a 1-800 number. You have to remember this was before the World Wide Web, but uh, <laughs> we set up a, a what seemed like a very modern communication uh, device at the time. Uh, and we received lots and lots of reports from all over the country, many of which were uh, really tugged at the heartstrings. I remember one in particular that was a, there was a, there was a school chorus, I think, who had gone to a Denny's either before or after a performance at a church, and or it was a church choir, maybe. And all the kids were African-American. They went to the Denny's and, you know, they suffered discrimination very similar to what happened to the Secret Service agents. And, you know, these are kids who were 13, 14, 15 years old uh, uh, being treated uh, badly because of their race. It was just <clears throat> one thing after another. And we assembled all of these, uh, these stories. We sent lawyers from the firm around the country um, to interview, um, you know, this was somewhat decentralized in the sense that these reports were coming in from people who had visited Denny's around the country. And so we had people interviewing, you know, assistant managers and waiters and waitresses and stuff. Um, Bob Duncan, God bless Bob Duncan, spent a lot of time back behind Denny's restaurants in, in, for a period of three or four months. Um, and so there was a lot, there were a lot of reports coming in and a lot of investigation going out relating to all these other events. So this, this was back in the 90s, as you say, but, but it did strike me when you were talking about these reports coming in from across the country and then something you just um, elaborated on, talking about Bob Duncan and other members of the team going out around the country. This was not just a Denny's in Annapolis. This was not just two Denny's. Uh, these were many, uh, many instances of Denny's restaurants. Can you remember kind of how far flung this was? Are you getting reports from the West Coast and the South? All over the all country. Over. There was a separate class action actually filed in California. Um, and we worked arm in arm with the plaintiff's lawyers there. Uh, but the reports were coming in from, from everywhere. 
and uh, and actually, I should say, people of goodwill at Denny's restaurants, the assistant managers and even managers sometimes were were you know were uh, reporting on these events uh, that were happening around Denny's, and we should talk a little bit about the about the glue that held all this together because it wasn't uh, as Denny's originally claimed an in a situation where there were one-off events around the country. Uh, this was a situation, it later was revealed in discovery, uh, that was run from the top. Denny's had policies and they had manager training uh, 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 sessions and materials that were just jaw-dropping in their, in their racism. Um, uh, and, and, so, and so it was far-flung but it was also very much centralized, which really was uh, one of the two major keys to the, to the enormous success that ultimately prevailed here. Kate, can I just add one thing to that when Jonathan says what the documents showed was, was so jaw-dropping. Um, I will never forget some of the documents that I saw that illustrated for Denny's management what it meant to have um, people in the restaurant who were too dark. I, I saw charts that illustrated what some of the Denny managers thought as uh, the tipping point when the clientele became too dark. Um, because once it was too dark from their viewpoint, why then you need to discourage these darker people from being in the restaurant. We don't wanna have them in there, partly because if the restaurant looked too dark, it would discourage non-dark people from wanting to come in. Um, it, was, it was just blatant that they were systematically doing this sort of thing. Yeah. One of the things that we've talked about in, in some of the other discrimination cases that we've covered on this podcast is you know, the the usual absence of what you would call intentional discrimination and the need to prove something instead by way of making a case about disparate impact, disparate impact on a minority community. But here it sounds like your arguments were look at these documents and look at the tone from the top and, you know, QED. So what, what, were the, what was the sort of the, the theme of the arguments of the case? That there was, there was no disparate impact element to this case at all. Mm -hmm. It was overt, uh, intentional discrimination, not only on the part of restaurant managers, but also on the part of the Denny's, um, I think it was owned at the time by a company called Flagstar. But in any event, uh, the, the senior management of the, of the, of the company itself uh, were engaging in what could only be described as intentional discrimination. They, they would teach managers things like if there were too many African-Americans in the restaurant, if the restaurant became, as Walter said, too dark, you should be sure to seat African-Americans in the back of the restaurant so that they were not as visible from the window. Because the thought that Denny's had was that, was that whites would be disinclined to come in to the Denny's if they saw too many African-Americans in the restaurant. There were policies about making African-American customers pay first for their meal 
mm-hmm. before they were served. And you have to remember Denny's uh, is a sit-down restaurant. It's not a restaurant where you like McDonald's where you go up to the counter and you pay and you get food. This was a sit-down restaurant. And, and yet African-Americans were being made to pay first in part to deter them uh, and, 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 and diminish the number of African-Americans who would be in, in restaurants. It was one thing after the other. Every time we got a discovery disclosure from Denny's, it was just another, uh, another shocking disclosure. It, it really was quite remarkable. So I'm so curious because given given the consent decree, the consent order that uh, the DOJ had worked out, you know, days before this particular incident that, that spurred this lawsuit, given those documents, given that the documents were coming from centralized management, what was Denny's opposition? What were their arguments in opposition? Well, at the outset, their op- argument was what I mentioned before, which is that this was a, an entirely, uh, an entirely uh, um, episodic, uh, one-off situation at the Route 50 Denny's that involved the Secret Service and the other situations that emerged in the in the months, the early months of the case. They were all, you know, you have to understand. We have thousands of Denny's, and you know there are, you know, t- we have ten thousand people working at Denny's or whatever the numbers were, and you know, there are going to be bad things that happen. And that's all this is. Um, as, the, as the discovery emerged, um, to give the devil their due, I think Denny's outside law firm uh, was, it's not much of a do because they should have known this at the outset, but they were surprised at how, um, at how centralized and clear the, po- the, the, mm-hmm. the company-wide policy was at the time. So that the argument about decentralization and the argument attempting, attempting to sort of atomize the problem uh, just went up in smoke. And, um, you know, I mean, ultimately, their solution was to agree to a monumental settlement. <laughs> so let, let's talk about the monumental settlement, um, which is where, where all of that hard work and discovery led. Um, I think you mentioned earlier it was it was one of the most significant settlements you know at, at, at the time. Um, talk about how it came about and and what it was. Our beloved colleague Craig Hoover, uh, who um, at the time, like me, was you know just a kid. We were we were uh, litigating this case and. Craig took responsibility for negotiating directly with Denny's. We all were involved, obviously, but he was the principal spokesperson. And I have to say, one of the great joys of this case and of other pro bono cases was the opportunity to work alongside people at the firm who I frankly didn't have that opportunity very much uh, just because we were at the same level and we worked on different cases and Mm -hmm. such. But this was a case where we were we and Bob Duncan were basically running the show thanks to Walter, you know, being willing to let us. And, and, and Craig did a masterful job of negotiating the settlement. I have never even to this day seen a better negotiation than I saw in the months that he was, when he was negotiating principally with a lead lawyer at Latham and Watkins for Denny's, uh, but also with the Denny's folks. And, he, he just did an incredible job. And the result 
was a two-part settlement, one in California and one in our case, which was the, what we call the nationwide case, consistent with California's view of the world. <laughs> the country includes everything but California. But in any event, uh, the nationwide case, um, and, and it resulted in what I remember to be 50 plus million dollars in total uh, in total settlement outlay on the part of Denny's, um, some of which went to the named plaintiffs of which of, of which there were scores, and then much of which went to fund a claims process that uh, enabled people around the country to submit claims and receive compensation as the result of discrimination acts that they suffered. Um, it involved injunctive relief. It involved a monitor. Denny's was required to hire uh, a, a woman whom I'm, I'm ashamed to say I've forgotten her name. Um, um, just for the record, it has been 26 years. Um, mm -hmm. but, um, but she would, she engaged in diversity monitoring and, and sort of her job was to make sure that Denny's actually complied with the requirements in the future so that it wouldn't you know, take another lawsuit in order to make Denny's comply. There was a voice from inside. Um, and uh, it, was, it, was a, it was a bell ringer of a, of a settlement. And, uh, and, I, and I remember I was in trial on another case. I'm, I was very sad to, to find when the settlement was announced. It was announced at the Justice Department, the inimitable John Relman, who at the time was the public accommodations discrimination lawyer at the Washington Lawyers Committee, um, uh, uh, really just did an amazing job of getting the publicity out there about the settlement, which we all regarded as um, really crucial in order to assure that this win had more than just an effect on the individual victims, but also had an effect on Denny's and also had an effect on other chain restaurants like Denny's around the country. Yeah, particularly where the Department of Justice had previously attempted to negotiate a consent decree. Um, you know, I, I think the forward-looking relief and the really rigorous forward-looking relief and monitoring must have been key to that settlement. Was, was DOJ also involved in this lawsuit? You mentioned that the settlement was announced at DOJ. They were involved in the sense that they were continuing to supervise their own consent decree. And again, one of the great things about pro bono litigation is that the good guys all work together. Uh, so the good guys certainly work together in this case, the Saperstein law firm in California, we here and the Justice Department uh, were just a really wonderful three-legged stool. I mean, there were Obviously, there were there were there were a lot of strategic discussions. Each case had stood on its own on its own merit, but the, that was there were really three crucial pieces. And then within our team, I should say, uh, as in so many pro bono cases, the firm has done. You know, our success came in in part from the from the close partnership that we had. With the, with the public interest group, in this case, the Washington Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, um, that uh, allowed us to work, uh, you know, hand in glove with John Relman and others at the, at the Lawyers Committee uh, 
uh, to produce this incredible result. The point you made about the Lawyers Committee, I think, bears bears emphasizing as well just the importance, and we we see it across a number of these podcasts, of teaming, uh, Hogan and Hartson, Hogan Lovells, teaming with uh, lawyers, the Lawyers Committee, other groups that are doing the kind of not-for-profit, death penalty, you know, day-to-day work. Uh, it's an extraordinary community, and uh, you know, that that teaming was a very special effort. Yeah, you know, we have the we have the maven of this uh, on the call with us. Walter Smith, during his time in the whatever it was, late '90s, mid '90s, as the what we used to call the community services partner, the community services department partner, uh, created a. He created a citywide and really nationwide, but citywide group that got together like every month or so. And and it was just this wonderful collaborative group of law firm uh, pro bono uh, uh, lawyers and nonprofits. And I inherited this vibrant, rich uh, culture that Walter uh, in large part created. And it was it was a time in Washington when there were a lot of oars being pulled well in a in, a, in going in the right direction. Can I just add one thing, um, Kate, to to the settlement story? Yes. Um, part of the settlement involved attorneys' fees uh, being sought and received uh, by the firm. And I think I'm going to get this right. If I don't, Jonathan will say so. I think um, that uh, the law firm ended up contributing either all or most of the attorney's fees that the firm recovered to the lawyer's committee um, so that the lawyer's committee could use uh, not only the wonderful result, but could use the fees to um, create more cases that they could work on with other firms. So it was just one more great result, I think, that that flowed from from the good work that yeah. done by the firm. Wonderful capstone, definitely. Definitely. Jonathan, before I transition over to Walter to talk about Romer, anything else you'd like to add on Denny's? You know, we've um, we have somewhat dumped on Denny's now for half an hour. I should say that after this settlement uh, and with the monitor in place, there was, I think, a change in the leadership of Flagstar within six months or a year. Uh, Denny's really did a very good job of not just eradicating discrimination, but of changing the culture of the place. And so uh, I have I have heard in the years since that fr- that other chains learned from the Denny's experience as well, uh, but I know for a fact that Denny's certainly learned from the Denny's experience, uh, and and so you know they should they sh- they they didn't learn from at the outset they should have learned earlier. Don't get me wrong, I'm you know I I have no Denny's stock, but. Uh, they did. They did do a good job afterwards. 
know, I, I'm glad you mentioned that for two reasons. Um, the first is that it, it does show that there was a point where Denny's actually learned and changed its ways going forward. And the second was what you mentioned with respect to the other chains, because that was a question that was in my mind as well. You know, whether, as you mentioned earlier, this was a signal uh, to other chains who might not have had perhaps such overt instructions in place, but who had you know, biases that tended to run their decision. So um, do you remember, I know, as you say, it's been 26 years. Do you remember seeing any particular uh, chains that reacted differently, that were anecdotally written up as responding differently? I had a wonderful experience some years, not a lot of years, but maybe three or four years after this settlement. I was, I think I was on a, chairlift at a ski on a ski mountain and you know on a chairlift you talk to people and visit with them a little bit what are you where are you from what do you do that sort of thing eight minute conversations the guy i was talking to was the general counsel of one of the other major restaurant mm -hmm. chains which i think probably we shouldn't mention um and i just asked him i said you know i was one of the plaintiff's lawyers in the denny's case um did you hear about it? <laughs> and he, he confirmed what I said, which is that the entire industry uh, um, not only heard about it, but they had, you know, there, there's the National Restaurant Association and other trade associations. And there, there was a concerted effort to not only learn the lesson, but inculcate the lesson and, 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 and get the word out as the result of this, uh, you know, bell ringing uh, hit that Denny's took, um, um, you know, but, but uh, to, to be fair, not just to avoid liability of the sort Denny's suffered, but also to do the right thing and to recognize that, in fact, it is not a good business decision to mistreat a large percentage of your customer base, particularly, uh, you, you know, in restaurant chains like Denny's and, you know, Hardee's and others that, 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 uh, that that really should be appealing to the entire population of the United States, not carving off a mm -hmm. large percentage of their clientele by mistreating them. And so he he told the story, and that I that experience was the best one I can think of that reinforced in my mind that this had a broader impact than only on Denny's. Right. And when we talk about impact litigation, you know, what, what greater impact than on an entire industry? Uh, so that's wonderful to hear. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Jonathan. Um, so Can while, I just add one other thing, sure, Kate? This case, Denny's, also had a big impact within the law firm. An army of people, lawyers and legal assistants and others got involved in this. I went back and looked at the report from the time. The, the law firm really rose to the occasion to bring whatever was needed to make sure that this litigation was successfully handled. And I remember from the very beginning when we first talked about it, and kudos to Jonathan being involved in this, but when we first began, we, we kind of divided the, the responsibilities into three pots and I needed three great lawyers and they were Jonathan and Craig Hoover and Bob Duncan. The three of them really stepped forward. Others helped, but the three of them really stepped forward to make this result happen. And it, it, it was a win, win, win for all the reasons that we've talked about. 
Yeah, yeah and, and it was a win. It was a win within the firm, also mm-hmm. uh, sort of echoing the sort of the broader impact of the settlement in the restaurant industry. It was a win for the firm because cases like this that that catch the imagination of the lawyers at the firm that become of the, they, they they give a feeling of shared enterprise of shared effort um, uh, that were that we're all at the firm that we're all kind of kind of pulling in the same direction uh, because it is something not not that we're doing uh, you know in a in a in a team for a particular client but it's something that the firm is doing and that that the firm as a whole can be proud of and I think you know I'm I'm sure between Walter and you and I we could name you know, a, a dozen other cases that are of that sort. But those are crucial to the, you know, to the public interest culture of the firm, not only doing those cases, but making sure that that they are sort of, I don't know, I'm, I'm thinking of the word socialized. That's, that's, that's kind of not the right word, but, but that, 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 they, that they become known and embraced throughout the firm, as the Denny's case certainly was. I'm so glad that you both mentioned that, actually, because we, we had talked earlier about the teaming that happens when Hogan Lovells or Hogan and Hartson joins with someone outside the firm. But the teaming within the firm uh, and the importance of those teams to a huge impact litigation effort, I think you you can't overstate it. And just as you said, Jonathan, you know, I am confident that the youngest associates working on that team, you know, grew up to be leaders in their own right of, you know, significant impact litigation. We've seen it again and again in cases where summer associates, junior associates work on a team like this and are sparked to do something and to continue to do it. So it, it very much is a, a necessary hereditary trait that I think we have to keep, uh, keep tending. Okay, so Walter Smith is also here with us to talk about another discrimination case, this time against the LGBTQ community. Walter, this case all started with a referendum passed by voters in Colorado in 1992. What did that referendum do? That referendum um, uh, provided that no uh, jurisdiction in Colorado, whether a city or a county or what have you, was permitted to pass any statute or regulation that would protect gay people from discrimination. Pretty shocking. (laughs) Um, And uh, at the time, the governor of the state opposed passage, but the voters of Colorado passed it and it became law because it was an amendment to the Colorado Constitution. So how did, how did you and how did uh, Hogan Lovells become involved? We got involved because a lawsuit was brought in Colorado challenging the constitutionality of the amendment. And the uh, lower court in Colorado and the Colorado Supreme Court both struck it down as unconstitutional. Um, but the state then um, went to the Supreme Court and the court agreed to hear it. Uh, and after the Supreme Court agreed to hear it, the wonderful lawyer, Jean Dubosky, her name, um, had never been in a Supreme Court case before. And um, she then called Walter Dellinger, who was then the Solicitor General for President Clinton. Uh, and Jean herself had been a justice of the Colorado Supreme Court. So she knew um, Walter Dellinger uh, in that connection. 
and she asked Walter Dellinger um, who she should seek out to help her uh, when this case went to the Supreme Court. And I am proud to tell you that Walter Dellinger said that she should call Walter Smith and John Roberts. Um, you've probably never heard of John Roberts. But, um, <laughs> Rings uh, a bell. Rings a bell. Yeah. So John and I uh, were both lawyers at Hogan, and Jean Dubofsky called me um, and mentioned the, the reference that she'd gotten from Walter Dellinger and wanted to know whether um, I could recruit John and whether uh, the two of us and or others at the firm would be willing to entertain the possibility of working with her on the case. And I, of course, said yes. And I went to John's office near mine, asked him if he would be open to doing this. He, of course, said yes. And Jean flew to Washington and sat down with us, with, uh, with me and with John, to talk about the case. And of course, meanwhile, we had looked at the pleadings and the opinion. And so our involvement began after this conversation with Jean. Um, I had to propose to the firm that we take on uh, this involvement. I did, and the firm agreed. Um, and one thing led to another. Um, we worked very closely with Jean on developing what her theory ought to be. Um, in the Supreme Court. And um, I, of course, recruited others at the firm to be part of this. We began researching and thinking because at the time, winning um, a gay rights case in the Supreme Court of the United States was not what you usually were able to do. I have to tell you that at the time, the prevailing Supreme Court precedent, believe it or not, was a case called Bowers against Hardwick, a case we would now look on as shocking, but that was a case out of the 80s where the Supreme Court of the United States had said that um, there was nothing wrong with criminalizing um, consensual relationships between gay people. And at the time it was called um, by the Supreme Court a trivial argument a facetious argument to suggest that that could be unconstitutional. So we regarded this at the time as something of an uphill climb, especially since the argument being made in Romer was that it was violation, a violation of the Equal Protection Clause. And since gay people were not and still are not a suspect class, we had to argue that it was irrational or not pursuant of a legitimate state interest. And this is the argument that we made. And I and others at the firm worked with Jean on the brief, helped to write the brief, and did moot courts for Jean before she argued at the Supreme Court. Um, other gay rights organizations were involved. The ACLU was involved. Kate, you've seen this. We held moot courts for Jean in Hogan's moot courtroom. We held several of them to help prepare her for what we thought her theory uh, ought to be. And I'm proud to say that a good bit of the theory that we advanced in the brief and that she presented her oral argument 
um, was the theory and the rationale that the Supreme Court of the United States agreed to by a six to three vote. So let me ask you about that decision about the theory. The, the first is, you know, th this is a case, and it's a good um, kind of case to discuss in conjunction with the Denny's case, of course, because this is one where Hogan and Hartson, Hogan Lovells, was brought in at a late stage, uh, at a stage, as you said, Walter, where uh, two court decisions had already been rendered. Government of Colorado had already taken up and secured certiorari, it sounds like. Um, and so in some ways, you know, there, there are theories of the case that were already extant, uh, represented by the two lower courts' decisions. So what was the theory that you and John Roberts developed, along with Gene, that got the Supreme Court's attention? Well, I um, I haven't gone back to read the brief. As you heard Jonathan say, this was many, many years ago. But my memory is that because we were having to argue either that there was no rational basis for the amendment or that it was in pursuance of no legitimate governmental interest, um, we focused on the latter. Um, because um, as Supreme Court lawyers know, it's very hard to argue that any given law or legislation has no rational basis, because you can always think of rational basis for what was done. But the theory was, and let me read you what I think is the key sentence from the Supreme Court decision. This is what uh, Justice Kennedy wrote. And let me just say one other thing about this. Um, this case went to the Supreme Court at a time when Justice Kennedy was becoming what we came to call the swing vote. So, and you're an appellate lawyer, you know this, um, a brief to the Supreme Court was really a brief that said, Dear Justice Kennedy, you were going for his vote. Um, and so uh, our theory was trying to play to what we thought would be Justice Kennedy's sense of fairness, because that's important to him. And this is what he wrote. If the constitutional conception of equal protection of the law means anything, it must at the very least mean that a bare desire to harm a politically unpopular group cannot constitute a legitimate governmental interest. So the key argument is that what was being pursued here, that was the the effort to harm a particular group cannot be a legitimate governmental interest. And that was the main argument. And, and that was the argument that I think persuaded uh, Justice Kennedy and five of his colleagues. This was not five to four, this was six to three. Um, and I think that's an important point uh, to make about this decision because this decision, in my opinion, became the forerunner of other critical Supreme Court decisions, um, including the eventual decision in the same-sex marriage decision, Obergefell. I think it ended up influencing the case where the court determined that under the civil rights law itself, discrimination against gay people in employment violates the law. So 
I think from Romer to Obergefell to that most recent case um, uh, is a line of cases that, that began with Romer. I think Romer was the turning point in finally recognizing that discrimination against gay people in this country is not acceptable. And I think one of the remarkable things about that line that you talked about uh, is the presence of Justice Kennedy in that line, right? Because it was Justice Kennedy who wrote in Romer. It was Justice Kennedy who wrote in Lawrence versus Texas, which overruled Bowers versus Hardwick, which you talked about a few minutes ago. It was Justice Kennedy who wrote the uh, Defense of Marriage Act uh, opinion. And then it was Justice Kennedy who wrote Obergefell. But the most interesting thing about that line, too, is what you just mentioned, which is that this clearly became and and is not the Justice Kennedy show, because that decision that issued just this last term, of course, was not one that Justice Kennedy participated in. Uh, no. It was joined by you know, justices from many different stripes, uh, and I, including the chief justice, including the chief. At the time of Romer, you know, winning a gay rights case in the Supreme Court was not something that you would do. Um, but you know, the the trajectory post Romer. I think has has proven to be uh, happily and remarkably different. Let me right. ask you one other question about Romer. I assume you were at the oral arguments. Yeah. Did you have a sense in the room that day at the court where the decision might head? Yes, um, I did. Um, uh, now I can't remember which sentence or which justice said what. But I do remember as we walked out of the argument that we were optimistic. And I think all of us thought then that Justice Kennedy would be the key. Um, uh, and, and we suspected that others on the court would be with us, Justice Stevens. We hoped for Justice O'Connor. Um, we knew who the dissenters would be. Um, and they, in fact, dissented. Um, uh, pretty stridently, you probably remember this case, the, the, the dissent that Justice Scalia wrote in Romer was blistering. And if you go back and read it now, I think some people would admit it's kind of an embarrassing opinion from him because the centerpiece of that dissent was, you know, this is a cultural thing. And the court is trying to impose its own view on the country, what the culture ought to be. And, and, and part of the theme of Justice Scalia's dissent was that discriminating against gay people, that's just the way some people believe. And, and mm. the court ought not to be in the business of saying that's wrong and unacceptable for those who have that viewpoint. Now, that was a viewpoint of a lot of people um, this is one of those issues where the country, and good for the court for seeing this, the country has come a long way between Romer and Obergefell mm -hmm. and now. Yeah. Just as I think the country, we're not there yet on either of these issues. We're not there yet where we need to be on racial equity. We're not there yet where we need to be in inclusiveness when it comes to LGBTQ people, but we're better. We're a lot better now than we once were on both of those issues. And I'm proud to say that Hogan's involvement in Denny's on the one hand and Romer on the other has played an 
a helpful role in moving the country to being a more equitable place. Walter, you mentioned that when Walter Gellinger uh, recommended the firm to Gene, the two people he recommended were you and John Roberts. Uh, I have, in fact, heard of him. We know where he ended up uh, moving to eventually. Tell, tell us a little bit about what it was like to work alongside John and uh, what, you, what you saw then and uh, where you, did you know that it would lead where it led? Um, John was a joy to work with. Um, very good humored guy. Um, a great team player, smart as a whip, a terrific writer and speaker. Um, I worked with John on a number of cases. Um, I got to move court him when he was arguing and he moved court at me when I was arguing. Um, and when John left the firm to go, and I can't remember whether it was to go on the court, I think it was to go to the SG's office. But when he left the firm, I'm proud to say he gave me his cases. So I inherited things that, that John uh, was working on. Um, did I know when I was working with John that it would end up where it did? Sort of. I'll never forget the day that Barrett Prettyman, who was a mentor both for me and for John, we were at some gathering or other, and this was early in John's tenure at the law firm. And I think Barrett had been part of recruiting John to, to, to the firm originally. Um, but Barrett said to me, um, uh, watch out for that guy. <laughs> going to be on the Supreme Court. Um, and, you know, um, being on the Supreme Court is like lightning striking. There's a whole lot of capable people who'd like to be there and who would be good there. And very, very few, if that ever obviously going to happen to. Um, but uh, I was not surprised that that is how John's history played out. I think John... Um, planned uh, 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 what he did so that opportunity would present itself. You know, he worked um, at a great law firm, Hogan. He worked in the SG's office, and he was very active in a lot of political circles mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. that helped make this possible. And so when the opportunity came, he was in the right place at the right time. Yeah. Did, did Romer come up during his, during his confirmation? It did, and probably as a surprise to John. Here's what happened. Um, when John was nominated to the court, obviously all the reporters in town called around to try to hear some history and involvement and, and what John had done, and John had been at Hogan. Um, so I got a call from more than one reporter um, about working with John, and they wanted to know what had John worked on, and because I was the pro bono partner, they wanted to have been at the time. I was not there anymore when these calls occurred, of course. Um, had John worked on any pro bono matters? And I said, yes, indeed. Um, and I mentioned Roman. And, and when I did, it was interesting because John 
when he was nominated, had to fill out lots and lots of papers listing cases he had worked on. And John had not listed Roman. Um, and I think that was an oversight uh, because he had not been as involved as I had been. Um, but I mentioned it. Um, and of course, John was known to be quite a conservative fellow. Some people think that's why he was nominated. He was known to be a conservative fellow. Um, and Romer against Evans was not an obvious sort of case that a conservative lawyer would have worked on. And so I mentioned this, it became something of a story. Um, I got a call from the White House wanting to know what this was all about. Did he really work on this? What was his role? Um, they were concerned about it because when it made the newspapers, some people on the far right were critical of it, but ended up helping John because there were Democratic senators who asked him about it and were part of the exchanges about it, thought that this humanized John, that helped to show that John Roberts was not a right-wing ideologue as some had thought that he was a great lawyer and was an open-minded guy and was quite happy to work on this case. And he did and did so effectively. Wonderful. Thank you, Walter. At Hogan Lovells, our pro bono department has been fighting for justice for more than 50 years. Each case and story we've highlighted in these 10 episodes demonstrates that the fight is not over and we must continue advocating for the most vulnerable among us. We hope you'll join us in those efforts. Thank you for listening.